welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Linda Bregan. I am an Environmental Law Institute senior attorney and director of Eli's Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. Today, we're looking forward to talking about a really interesting topic, actually the intersection of two really interesting topics, food waste and climate action plans, or CAPS, as we affectionately call them. I am delighted that we have with us today my colleague, Akili Hu, an associate editor in our ELI Publications Department. Also with us today, Today is Kendra Apkowitz, the Chief Sustainability and Resilience Officer for the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County, and Darby Hoover, a Senior Resource Specialist with the Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. And full disclosure here, I have had the privilege of working with Darby for over six years on the Nashville Food Waste Initiative, which we are both still involved with as senior advisors, and more recently with Kendra on a range of climate change-related issues and projects here in Nashville, where I am based. And both of them are incredibly accomplished, dedicated, and knowledgeable, so I know this is going to be an interesting podcast. Uh, before we jump into the discussion, I want to provide a little background on climate action plans and food waste and why ELI developed its toolkit for incorporating food waste actions into municipal climate action plans that we're going to be talking about today. Akili will tell you more about the toolkit, which is available on ELI's Food Waste Initiative website, um, but first some, some context for this project. Due largely to NRDC's path-breaking work, it is now well known that we throw away a huge amount of food each year in this country. Up to 40% of our food is never eaten. And cities are on the forefront of the food waste challenge because they are responsible for managing solid waste and also for addressing food insecurity in their communities. Meanwhile, cities across the country and the world are experiencing the effects of climate change and preparing for sea level rise, urban heat islands, and other stresses. Fortunately, many cities are rising to the myriad challenges presented by a changing climate and have voluntarily pledged to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and in many cases have developed a plan for achieving their reduction targets. These climate action plans outline the measures the city will take to achieve both their mitigation targets and also their adaptation goals or the, the ways they will adapt to climate change impacts and become more resilient. And these climate action plans, it turns out, are great vehicles for adopting food waste reduction actions, most importantly because food waste is a major contributor to climate change with a greenhouse gas emissions footprint equal to 4% of U.S. emissions. And most of these emissions are released in the process of growing, transporting, processing, storing the food. However, after it is landfilled, food waste, which is typically the largest component of landfill waste by weight, also emits a significant amount of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas, and 95% of food waste ends up in landfills. Landfills, in fact, are the third largest source of U.S. methane emissions. And as many of our listeners probably know, Project Drawdown identified reducing food waste as one of the top three most impactful climate solutions for reducing greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. But addressing food waste not only helps to reduce the city's carbon footprint, but it has some really important co-benefits. And first among them is addressing food insecurity, a growing concern in this country. Estimates are that one in eight Americans struggle to put food on the table. And yet at the same time, we are throwing away up to 40% of our food. 
Another co-benefit of addressing food waste and climate action plans is reduced costs. The annual cost of food waste to the average American adult, $1,300. In addition to reducing food insecurity and cost, another co-benefit of reducing food waste is conserving resources. When food is wasted, all the energy and resources used to grow that food is wasted as well. But despite these co-benefits of addressing food insecurity, reducing costs, conserving resources, and the substantial potential to reduce carbon emissions, many climate action plans do not include food waste reduction measures. And again, full disclosure here, I co-chair the National Mayor Sustainability Advisory Committee, and we discovered this when we were in the process of developing recommendations on the city's climate action plan. When we identified this gap that many climate action plans do not address food waste, we started to conduct research to figure out the best food waste actions to include in the national plan. And once we started on these, this effort, we realized it could be really helpful to other cities to share what we had learned. So we developed the toolkit for cities in an effort to make it easier and therefore more likely that cities would include food waste actions because they wouldn't have to start from scratch. So that's the backstory on the toolkit for incorporating food waste actions in municipal climate action plans. And I wanna hand it over now to Akili who conducted a lot of the research for the toolkit and helped draft it along with our former colleague, Sam Koenig uh, to describe the toolkit. Akili? Thanks, Linda. So the toolkit is organized into an easily accessible online spreadsheet for, as Linda mentioned, cities to incorporate food waste reduction into climate action plans and other sustainability efforts. We provide a menu of mitigation and adaptation actions related to food waste that can be included in these plans. We also have links to example provisions in existing plans for each action when available for cities and local governments to reference. And finally, we also include icons that denote key strategies and approaches we identified in our research. So these overarching categories include policies and ordinances, public awareness and education, incentives and funding, leadership and recognition, and environmental justice. And a bit about our methodology, ELI compiled food waste related actions from municipal caps and other food system and sustainability plans from 36 cities in the US, ranging from large cities leading in climate action like Seattle and San Francisco to small and mid-sized cities like Nashville, Providence and others. I'll add that this list is not intended as a fully exhaustive resource. Instead, it represents a robust geographically representative sampling with at least four plans from each of the main regions in the US, the West, Midwest, Southwest, Southeast, and Northeast. We also organize these actions by the EPA food recovery hierarchy as adapted by the organization REFED. In priority order, the hierarchy categories are prevention, rescue, and recycling. By organizing actions according to this framework, we hope that cities can have a better understanding of the impacts of various strategies and how to prioritize efforts for maximum environmental and social benefits. You can check out our full methodology report and spreadsheet on the ELI website. And with that, we'll move on to our discussion. Thank you, Achille. And now we'd like to turn to our expert guests. We are so fortunate to have NRDC Senior Resource Specialist Darby Hoover and Kendra Abkowitz, Metro Nashville's Chief Sustainability and Resilience Officer, with us today. And I'd like to start by asking you both the same question. And Kendra, maybe you can start us off. Uh, the toolkit outlines numerous potential food waste related actions that cities can take to mitigate or adapt to climate change. Could you talk about the process a city 
may want to use to identify which actions to prioritize. For example, how should the Environmental Protection Agency's food recovery hierarchy, which prioritizes prevention over rescue and recycling, be used in developing plans? And, and how is it being used in Nashville? Thanks so much, Linda. I think that's a great question to kick us off. And um, before I specifically answer that question, I want to make sure I again highlight what an important topic this is to cities. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you talked through um, how we're on the front lines of coping with this issue. You know, specifically in Middle Tennessee, we know that in excess of 16% of Middle Tennessee residents suffer from food insecurity. Um, and so there's great opportunity to proactively address that through um, food waste reduction measures. Um, kind of pivoting a little bit to think through how we as a city are using the toolkit and, and really prioritizing actions um, and making sure that they align with what we have planned from a climate action perspective. Um, I'll quickly touch on a couple of things we're considering in that process. Um, so we're taking a, a look at existing plans and requirements in place um, and the extent to which specific food waste reduction strategies align with, with those. Um, we're fortunate here in Nashville to have a fairly recent solid waste master plan that presents very ambitious targets and strategies for reducing organic waste. So trying to figure out again what that alignment between um, some of these toolkit strategies and any existing plans on the books is hugely important to us. We're also looking at our ability to execute um, in alignment with state policy and or law. And so one of um, you know the things I love about this toolkit is that it um, presents a lot of really feasible um, and sort of rational approaches um, to addressing food waste kind of within those confines and that existing structure. Um, in reference a little bit to the EPA food recovery hierarchy, um, that's hugely important in terms of prioritizing our actions. And probably the best way to represent this is to talk about it in terms of impact. Um, and so that hierarchy is one way that allows us to get at and better address impact. Um, as it relates to climate action planning in particular, looking at greenhouse gas emissions reduction potential um, is also hugely important. Um, and so really being able to tie um, food waste reduction and benefits in terms of addressing climate change um, is, 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 is great um, when we think about uh, identifying impact. We're also gonna be looking at costs uh, co-benefits, as you referenced earlier, public perception and support, um, overall feasibility, likelihood of success and ability to execute, and then also unintended consequences. So while we may see a lot of really positive impacts coming from uh, various food waste reduction strategies and climate action strategies, also trying to sort of poke holes in that approach and try to anticipate what may occur that, um, that, that we're not really thinking through at that point in time is also equally as important. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kunter, for that um, sort of insight into the process um, you're using, how you're thinking about this. And Darby, could, could you respond to the same question from an NGO perspective? Can you comment on how we should go about prioritizing food waste actions to include in climate action plans? Absolutely. Um, I think that the EPA food recovery hierarchy 
is a great reference. It's a visual diagram that depicts where you're going to achieve the greatest environmental, economic, and social benefits from deploying strategies to address food waste. So the greatest benefits in all those categories comes from preventing food from going to waste in the first place. The next way, best way to reduce impacts associated with food waste is to rescue surplus food and redirect that to uh, food insecure populations. And then finally, you wanna recycle any remaining food scraps to help build healthy soils, et cetera. So that's a great place to start. In practice, that's not how a city or another entity goes about implementing food waste reduction strategies. You don't start by maximizing all of your prevention strategies and then moving to rescue and then moving to recycling. In fact, it's often the opposite. So cities will often start their food waste journey by saying, Huh, let's look at what's going to our landfill. Um, and as you mentioned, Linda, the, the typically largest material that is sent, being sent to a landfill at a municipal level is food waste. So if you're trying to reduce the amount of food you're sending to landfill, the amount of emissions that that's creating, the best way to start is to think about how to not put so much food in the landfill. And many cities will turn immediately to thinking about composting or organics recycling as a way to solve that. That's fine, we don't tell cities Nope, you can't do any of that until you've maximized your prevention. But what we do say is try to right size your efforts in the direction of recycling along the lines of the pyramid. And by that, I mean, don't develop a compost program by saying, this is what we wanna do with all of the food that is currently going to waste in our locality. Instead say, we wanna prioritize solutions that get at the top of the hierarchy that address prevention and rescue. And we need to allocate resources, money, staff time, et cetera, to those strategies to make sure that we aren't um, inadvertently removing the ability to support those higher hierarchy strategies by putting all of our efforts into compost. So that's one way to think about how to use the hierarchy to set guidance. And as Kendra said, I think it's really important for every city to take stock of where they are in particular, try to get some picture of where the food waste is being generated in your city. Fortunately, NRDC has done some reports and schools our latest report, um, Feeding a City, analyzes the results of us running our food waste generation calculator estimates on 22 different cities. So what that does is it says, here's a profile that we're finding a lot of commonalities in food waste generation across cities. But if you know off the bat that probably residents and restaurants are gonna be a big part of where your food waste is coming from, you may wanna develop some strategies that at least address those sectors. And then combining that, as Kendra said, with looking at what is gonna be relatively low cost, what is gonna be high feasibility in your community and what may get you some quick wins. So for example, many cities start with articulating goals, whether it's through their climate action goals or other goals to say, we'd like to address food waste. Some cities start off with a proclamation so that, that there's clear mayoral buy-in for the city to devote resources to this. And um, starting with something like consumer education. So putting up a page on a city website that offers tips for consumers to reduce the amount of food that's being sent to waste is a pretty low cost way to start the food waste reduction strategies journey. And looking at where low hanging fruit might be, if you've already got um, some sort of business uh, green certification program, for example, incorporate food waste strategies into that. If you've already got a robust program of environmental education and school curricula, look at ways to incorporate food waste into that. So start with those low hanging fruit, start with what's low cost and feasible, think about the hierarchy, and also think about what strategies you can put into place that achieve buy-in at the higher levels 
of the city and community that you're going to need in order to continue to devote resources and time to this. Darby, thanks. It, it's really interesting to hear about what you've learned from working with a wide range of cities on food waste issues. And I, I want to hand it over to Akili uh, to follow up on, on that a little bit. Akili? Thank you. Um, yeah, Kendra, I want to return to something we've talked about, about municipalities being on the front lines when it comes to solid waste management and food security. Um, so can you talk a bit about these challenges in Nashville and how reducing food waste could help address both of them? Absolutely. Thanks, Akili. And, and you're right. Cities are uniquely positioned to take really strong actions to make strategic waste management decisions that can minimize food waste, which in turn can address food security while taking proactive steps steps to address climate change. So there's this real opportunity there. Um, as, as Linda noted earlier, um, kind of in her overview of the toolkit, uh, cities manage provision of many social services, either directly or in partnership with nonprofits and businesses, which can give us a really good read on local needs, such um, as things related to food insecurity. Simultaneously, we manage collection of waste and other material streams um, and, and seek to encourage diversion and disposal. Um, as that kind of plays out in Nashville, um, unfortunately, we've recently seen how disruption of solid waste management services um, and recycling can really detrimentally impact the functioning of the city um, and how dependent on this other services um, and other services Nashvilleans are. Um, pile on to that kind of like many growing cities, we're dealing with shifting demographics, increasing cost of living, um, which has led some groups to really thrive and then others being left behind. And so we're also seeing a more emergent homelessness crisis in the city as part of that as well. Um, I, I wanna share some statistics with you all that I think are really representative of um, food waste and food insecurity. And again, the opportunities we have in Nashville. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't give credit um, to the incredible work that ELI, NRDC, National Food Waste Initiative and Urban Green Lab um, produced in their October 2017 um, National Food Rescue Landscape Analysis. Um, so I mentioned earlier, we know that over 16% of Middle Tennessee residents suffer from food insecurity. Um, Feeding America and similar organizations have estimated that residents of Davidson County experience a total food budget shortfall of over $60.8 million. And so that's equivalent to roughly 19.3 million meals per year. So food insecurity is an issue um, in Davidson County. Um, at the same time, um, the analysis that was again produced by um, uh, incredible collaborators who are here on this call showed that the equivalent of 9.3 million additional meals at a minimum could hy hypothetically be rescued from these businesses and sectors that um, are highly engaged in um, you know, food service industries under optimal conditions. And so um, essentially what that means is there's ample opportunity in Nashville to address significant aspects of food insecurity via food rescue. Um, so again, incredibly important opportunity here. Um, and that's a little bit more detail about how we see it playing out in Nashville. Thank you so much, Kendra. It's so helpful to hear about the specific experiences um, and how these play out in one city in particular. Um, and Darby, this question is for you. Can you tell us about NRDC's Food Matters Regional Initiative and how you are supporting your participating cities and acting on this connection between food waste and climate? 
Yes, thanks, Akili. NRDC's Food Matters Project uh, develops tools, resources, and partnerships to address food waste. And our primary focus right now is on partnering with cities through what we're uh, what we call our regional initiative. So our regional initiative involves three different regions, Great Lakes, Mid-Atlantic, and Southeast. Within each of those three regions, we're partnered with five cities. And the idea is that within these regions and within this initiative, the cities can learn from one another. They can leverage regional synergies that sometimes occur if you're looking to implement solutions that might cross uh, city boundaries. And they can find peers whose work and whose circumstances are very similar to their own. So in coming up with this structure, our goal was to say NRDC will be heavily involved in providing resources um, to help you set goals, develop programs, um, and policies and to maximize the effectiveness of your food waste reduction strategies. So the idea here is that we think some cities often confront similar barriers when attacking food waste. Often they don't have enough data. So where we start with those cities is to encourage them again to think about where the food waste is being generated. We've, we've helped them identify a high level estimate of where the sectoral breakdown of the likely food waste generation is occurring and to devote their resources to uh, tackling food waste in a way that best makes sense for their city, and also to adopt similar strategies throughout these three cohorts of the regional initiative so that they can learn from one another and that they can uh, build best practice together and help magnify their collective accomplishments. So um, within that, I, you know, the question around how cities are um, acting on the connection between food waste and climate is an interesting one because for many cities, that's not the motivating factor. So the cities who are in the initiative and the cities we've worked with generally tend to be motivated to address food waste uh, in three different categories. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, they want to reduce the amount of waste that's going to disposal. And to do that, tackling the, the largest material in that waste stream, food, is going to be a priority. So that's one motivation. You could reduce the cost and impacts of food waste going to landfill. A second motivation is to start to address the issue of food insecurity in their cities. So being involved in food rescue, as Kendra was just talking about, is one way to help uh, magnify those efforts and the uh, effectiveness of those food waste reduction strategies by directing good food elsewhere so it gets eaten. And then uh, again, you know, how the cities are acting on the connection between food waste and climate isn't necessarily climate driven. Although the third reason that food that cities are often motivated to act on food waste can be that they have included food waste and climate action plans. They have included food waste reduction in uh, waste reduction goals or other sustainability goals. But we don't often see them start there. What we usually see is that they come to the realization that food waste should be part of their climate action goals by making progress for some of those other reasons. And the good news is it doesn't matter why they're motivated to tackle food waste, it will still have a positive climate impact. So what we're seeing now with the cities in the regional initiative is that as they've been participating in this for a while, they're gaining knowledge, they've developed some strategies, they're having effectiveness. They're starting to see that maybe this is something they should build into longer term goals and broaden the spectrum of where they think these food waste reduction strategies are, are greatest, are, are gonna be effective, including with climate action goals. So we're seeing more and more our cities after having deployed a number of different policies and programs, 
looking to incorporate food waste at those higher levels for climate action, et cetera. Thank you so much, Darby. I think this initiative really shows just how much great work is being done all across the country. And it's great to highlight that there are so, so many benefits of reducing food waste. Um, over to you, Linda. Uh, thanks, Achillian. Thanks, Darby. Um, and that certainly resonates um, with me in terms of our experience working on climate more uh, issues more generally with cities, that it is often these co-benefits that, that are drivers. Uh, well, Kendra, let's turn back to you and uh, Nashville, uh, which is in the process of updating and implementing its climate action plan. You've talked about this some already today, but how will food waste actions be included in your have and are there actions you think will be particularly important? Thanks, Linda. So, um, and and you are intimately familiar with this, um, as you know, due to your um, great leadership of our Sustainability Advisory Committee and their role um, relating to the Climate Action Plan. And so, when we think about food waste and solid waste more generally. Um, and Darby spoke at length to this moments ago, we know those are contributors to greenhouse gas emissions um, and the effects of those things um, we call climate change. And so um, our recommendations for climate action um, include priority actions to reduce waste and specifically food waste. And so I think, um, you know, from the research that you all have done, we are perhaps one of the, the few cities that is, you know, intentionally trying to draw that connection between um, organic waste management and climate action. And so I think that's really exciting. Um, when um, we are thinking through narrowing in on um, which of those recommendations for climate action we're going to deem as high priority and sort of um, tackle first, um, there's a there's a couple of strategies that I see and that the city is seeing is really, really important um, to pursue in the near term. Um, so one is kind of an overarching strategy and then others are sort of more specific in nature. And so I'll touch on the overarching strategy first. Um, that's really, again, reducing food waste through continued and expanded um, education of residents and businesses. Um, and this really runs the gamut, right? Um, so we can cover um, all of EPA's food recovery um, hierarchy through expanded and continued education and outreach. So we can talk about concepts of source reduction um, in, in a very relevant way um, to various different stakeholder groups. Um, we can talk about food rescue, composting, um, and so much more. Um, and so we're fortunate here in Nashville um, to have great partners with the National Food Waste Initiative um, and um, a leader in that space, um, as well as our zero waste team within uh, Metro government um, to help really lead that charge and make sure we're reaching um, all potential partners in this effort. Um, we're not only trying to do um, a much better job of, of educating, but we're also trying to be more sophisticated and targeted in that approach and really harness technology such as podcasts, podcast apps, widgets, more sort of direct connections um, to step up our ability to reach the community. And so I think, again, um, education is one of those low cost, high impact strategies that you can use really flexibly. Um, we'll also be looking at a number of other um, specific actions and projects over the next two to three years. Um, so one is going to be piloting of curbside organics collection. Um, that's a project that's very much in its um, infancy. Um, and um, we've got a lot of planning to do and ironing out of details, but I think that's a really exciting addition 
um, to how we're comprehensively looking at tackling food waste. Um, we'll also be piloting a compost procurement policy and metro projects with eventual expansion um, beyond just the metro government footprint based on what we learn. Um, we have recently applied for funding to pilot co-digestion of food waste at our water resource recovery facilities. That's another kind of very technical project um, where, again, we're interested in understanding um, how that works and, again, sort of what um, feasibility of scaling up looks like long term. Uh, we'll be looking at reinvigorating our mayor's food saver challenge in partnership with the National Food Waste Initiative and restaurants across the city um, to really, again, um, encourage them to reduce food waste um, and encourage um, food rescue and donation. Um, and, and really highlight many of and, and hit many of the co-benefits that we've spoken to at length today. Um, transitioning a little bit to longer term priorities, um, we have a real need to look at our fee structure for waste management. Um, and that could really provide um, a, a very direct incentive to increase reduction and diversion strategies for all waste streams. But specifically food waste management. And so when, um, when we consider all of that together, I think the intent is again to kind of take a multi-pronged approach um, to how we're tackling food waste in Nashville um, and hopefully um, really augmenting um, also the many co-benefits that can come from those actions. Kendra, thanks. These are just, you know, really wonderful developments, and it's so nice for Nashville to serve as the model for other cities, particularly other cities in, in the region. Uh, I, I like when it's not just large coastal cities that are uh, setting the bar, you know, higher and higher. And that, that leads me to another question uh, for Darby. Um, from a more national perspective, more and more cities are adopting organic waste diversion requirements or even bans. Uh, why should cities consider such measures and, and what are some of the most common challenges and what do you recommend as the first steps toward moving toward a diversion requirement? That's a great question. I think cities are looking to again, reduce the impact of food and other organics from entering the landfill in a number of ways. And one of those ways is to ban those materials from being landfilled or disposed of incinerators. Banning materials from entering landfill isn't a new concept. There's already uh, a number of cities that prohibit toxic chemicals, other hazardous materials like electronics, batteries, et cetera, from being landfilled. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is to encourage those materials to be reduced and to be recycled, and also to protect against the health and environmental impacts of proper disposal, improper disposal. Some areas uh, have extended bans to include organics like yard waste, and increasingly we're seeing food scraps being added to that. While these bans mostly are occurring at the state level, we are seeing more and more municipalities getting interested in uh, implementing similar requirements, which helps increase the diversion rate for food scraps and food waste. And it also helps encourage the separation of food in the waste stream from other types of waste. And that separation is really important because that's the only way you can capture food waste as a resource. It's to separate food, and in some cases, food and other organics from other materials that are going to waste. So there are a few ways to formulate this kind of legislation. One is an outright ban at the landfill level. The model that I typically recommend is one that targets commercial generators of a certain size and that has phased in over time to incorporate more and more entities and, and of a certain size uh, 
that typically can be, uh, it, it can actually be a size of generator in terms of population or employees, but it can also mean how much um, is being generated at that facility. And, and that's a way to say, okay, if, if there are X number of food scraps being generated from your facility uh, per month, per year, then you are eligible for this ban that is going to require you to divert those food scraps through preventing them from going to waste in the first place or finding out if you have surplus food that could be donated or um, recycling your food scraps through composting or anaerobic digestion. So that can be accomplished at the municipal level. It can sometimes be challenging if the municipality is not in direct control of all the waste that's entering the landfills. The landfill's not within their boundaries, for example. They may want to partner with other jurisdictions that are putting waste in that landfill as well and see if they can come up with, with similar requirements on those large generators or other entities. Um, and then it can be tricky to say, okay, you can't put any of your foods in, food in the landfill if you don't have the other pathways built out fully. So if you don't have enough um, capacity for composting food scraps in your area, it can be challenging to require generators to compost food scraps. So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, which setting policy can help develop, but I think setting policy is most effective if you already have built a little bit of what's necessary to achieve the success of that. So building up a little bit of the infrastructure, providing incentives, providing um, streamlined permitting, providing abilities for um, a, a number of different types of entities to set up composting, organics, recycling, um, also supporting food rescue. And again, implementing those kinds of food waste prevention, education and other activities can be helpful to lay the groundwork to make those bans uh, or um, mandatory generator requirements success. In terms of first steps toward implementing an, a landfill ban on organics or other kinds of uh, restrictions or laws related to which generators might be subject to being required to reduce the amount of food that they're landfilling, there are some steps you can take before implementing that kind of uh, policy that can help build the groundwork for that policy. For And many of these are outlined in the Climate Action Toolkit. So for example, before going straight to a ban or required diversion for large generators, require businesses to submit waste reduction plans, require the city itself to set a good example by implementing those plans, um, require uh, establish a solid waste authority so that you can provide the necessary governance structures that would help with implementing and enforcing that kind of ban. As Nashville has done, develop a solid waste master plan where you can set concrete goals for a number of waste reduction actions, including food waste reduction. And making sure that you examine existing policies to see if there's anything that might be prohibitive toward implementing that kind of a, a plan to require um, food waste to be diverted from landfill. So looking at what your existing policy structure is and adding those kinds of goals and uh, other kinds of um, policies in place or other kinds of programs to be made available to help educate large generators, et cetera, and help lay that groundwork. Thanks, Darby. There really there are a lot of pieces uh, to to this, and and in making sure a diversion requirement is ultimately successful, it's going to be interesting to see at what pace these these diversion requirements uh, progress around the country. Um, I'm going to hand it back over to you, Achille, to ask. I think what are our last couple of questions on today's podcast? Yep, that's right. Thank you. 
Kendra, um, can you explain the importance and role environmental justice and equity plays in identifying, incorporating, and implementing food waste-related climate actions? Absolutely. Thanks, Akili. So as the toolkit notes, and as we've touched on uh, at, at, at a couple of times throughout today's conversation, food waste is very much a social issue. So it's not just an environmental one. In fact, that's really not unique to food waste, but I think it's um, it comes into hyper-focus when we think about food waste. We see it play out um, uh, very significantly, though, um, in this particular issue. Um, so in 2019, 10.5% of all U.S. households experienced food insecurity at some point. Um, and then when we think about um, sort of the past two years and COVID, in many ways, um, that's exacerbated these circumstances for families um, across the, the globe. So when food goes to waste, that's a precious resource. Um, it's a precious environmental resource. It's a precious um, economic resource. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's sustenance for us. And so that could have been provided to a family in need. And so um, it really operates at, at the, the crux of environmental justice. Um, so kind of taking that a step further when understanding how to address both food waste and food insecurity, um, kind of understanding which populations in particular have historically borne or are currently bearing um, disproportionate impacts associated um, with food waste um, or climate change um, or food insecure more, in, insecurity more generally is, is important. And to address this, we really, um, you know, need to, again, understand where, where those populations are um, and uh, use really good information and tools that can help identify those communities of interest. Um, I think concurrent with that, we also need to have really strong relationships capable of building trust. Um, within and um, serving the community. And so in the work um, that I do, whether it's related to food waste or otherwise, I think, again, it's hyper important here. Um, partnerships are critically important um, and everyone pitching in and doing their part um, really creates kind of for, for a successful landscape. And so nonprofits and other last mile organizations in addition to local governments, um, actually are on the front lines uh, in serving food insecure populations. Um, and so extending um, their role and their effort um, to address environmental justice um, through food rescue and food donation um, is again, a really meaningful and critical strategy for us moving forward. We need those partnerships to work here uh, to make an impact. Thanks, Kendra. I'm glad to hear that Nashville will definitely be prioritizing partnerships. Um, and Darby, one last question for you. In developing the toolkit, we face some challenges with respect to estimating the emissions reductions associated with each action. So do you have any advice for cities that may want to quantify the potential impacts of food waste related actions? Well, Akili, the challenges are real. It is a hard thing to do to try to quantify those emissions reductions gains from uh, addressing food waste. And you, I think the toolkit does a good job of explaining what some of the options are. One of the tools I use the most frequently is EPA's WARM model. And that is a tool that you can download. It calculates greenhouse gas emissions of different ways of um, different pathways for food waste, as well as providing you with, with other metrics for, for waste management practices. So the tool is designed to be used 
by cities who want to compare the impacts of landfilling their their various materials with impact with the corresponding impacts of not landfilling those materials. So, for example, the tool allows you to estimate how many tons are going to landfill and then say, what if we instead sent those tons to source reduction or and recycle or recycling or compost or anaerobic digestion? So you can take the amount of a current material that is being landfilled and enter that same amount in any of those alternative pathways for a comparison on the savings of greenhouse gases that if that will accrue if you use those other pathways. And you can separate out by material. So you can just take food waste as an overarching category and calculate the savings from that. The thing I think is, is great about WARM is that they do provide a source reduction tally for this so that if you if you ask how many tons are going to be source reduced compared to landfills, what would be the impacts of that, then the tool will tell you uh, that there are greenhouse gas emission savings associated with source reduction that are greater than any of the other pathways, which is which is true because a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with food waste happen upstream. And this could be a challenge for cities who are trying to track what they're responsible for. And many of these emissions qualify as scope three, meaning they're outside the direct control of the city. Nevertheless, they are emissions that are embedded in that food waste when it enters the city because that's uh, it represents the emissions that were created in producing the food, manufacturing the food, transporting the food, et cetera. So all of that should be taken into consideration. Um, I, the waste reduction model does account for some of those upstream impacts, but it primarily, again, is, is recommending and uh, or providing information on the different pathways and the different impacts related to the different pathways compared to landfilling. So that, I think, is one way to do that. There are a number of other calculators and tools out there. Something else I encourage cities to do is to combine climate impacts with other impacts. And to measure anything that they can measure as a good pathway toward being able to measure more. So as much as we want to be able to tell the stories associated with food waste reduction, and as much as that's a powerful strategy, we also need some numbers to make the case often for why the numbers of dollars should continue be, to be spent on food waste reduction strategies, for example. So having those climate reduction numbers can help. You've got to have um, some kind of tonnage measurement in order to achieve that. So you need to know how many tons are going to landfill or how many tons are, are going to some other destination. And if you don't have that information, look at how you might be able to estimate it, look at how you might be able to learn from what other cities have done, look to whether you can find a waste characterization study that separates out food from other materials, et cetera. So all of that can be something that you lay the groundwork for. And in the meantime, measure whatever you can measure. And we have a number of tools at our NRDC Food Matters website, which is nrdc.org slash food matters. One of the tools we have there is a tool on assessing progress. And we provide some suggestions for alternative types of metrics that can combine with these climate action metrics and give cities some of the momentum and, um, and establish some tracking mechanisms that will help them build on that and eventually get to some of those climate and other metrics, even if they're not able to generate them in the first place. And those metrics can look like things like how many community events related to food waste reduction education have you held, how many people attended those, or um, how many uh, entities are involved in food rescue in your city, for example. So capturing numbers that you can capture is a good ramp up to capturing those bigger scale numbers that 
are sometimes the ones that make the biggest case, but that may be hardest to get right off the bat. Awesome. Thanks so much, Darby, for helping us break down what quickly becomes a very complex and technical issue. And I'm glad you pointed out the NRDC website, um, the Food Matters resources, because there's just so many great tools and, and reports there for food waste reduction. And I'll hand it over back to you, Linda. Well, thank you. This has just been such an interesting discussion. So much is happening from a policy perspective and just on the ground operational perspective. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask if either of our guests have anything they would like to add. Uh, Kendra, any closing thoughts? Really, again, just want to emphasize um, how critical of an issue and opportunity area this is for cities. Um, and it's really one where there are a lot of um, quick wins. And I think due to the myriad co-benefits that can come from both tackling um, food waste um, and food insecurity, um, it's, it's one that's largely popular um, uh, you know, with the public. And so um, would definitely encourage communities who have not um, seriously considered more strategic actions they can take in this space to reference the toolkit um, and go all, all in on these topics. Thank you, Kendra. Darby, any last uh, observations? Yeah, I would just echo Kendra in saying that I would really encourage folks to take a look at this Climate Action Toolkit. There are some great suggestions in there, even if you're not adopting a comprehensive climate action plan, or even if you only have limited opportunity to, to incorporate some of these strategies. You can find other ways to incorporate those strategies and to make sure that you are addressing food waste in a number of ways. So that toolkit is a great way to get an overview of how some of the actions that you take to reduce food waste can make a difference to climate and other impacts. And I'll just do another shameless plug for the NRDC resources because we have a number of other tools and we're working on developing a series of model policies similar to this climate action toolkit, but ways that cities can take a template and use that to help develop the policy in their own community, um, including the model compost procurement policy that Kendra mentioned, which ELI developed with assistance from NRDC and other policies that we're hoping to work on that help cities have a template for moving forward on food waste reduction. And this climate action toolkit is, act is absolutely a great place to start. Darby, thanks. Thanks for those um, those remarks. And you, we are finding increasingly how important having models, uh, model policies, model ordinances, model executive orders can be in terms of how rapid the uptake is at the local level because so many cities are understaffed and under-resourced. So thank you. We um, Really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today and sharing your insights on this important topic. Uh, thank you, Akili, for joining us uh, as well. If our listeners want to learn more, ELI's Toolkit for Incorporating Food Waste into Municipal Climate Action Plans is available on the ELI website with our other research reports on food waste. So thank you so much for listening today, and we hope you will join us again soon for another People, Places, Planet podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.